Don't call it a comb back. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, whatever, Grab girl. my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. They took it away. Now, Ed, our, we just did a segment that was so great that Jared sitting in the studio, instead of listening to us, retweeted a tweet that says, seriously, a monkey could bartend. This is the Press Box. The last two days on our opening segments, there's two segments we have for the best of. Now, you're probably going to have to play them on a loop because there's not a lot of best of on the show. we got to pay attention during these times. With Grady and Bischoff. Coming up next, we find out if monkeys can bartend. On ESPN Las Vegas. Here we are. It's a Wednesday. It's Ed, Tyler, and Jared. Big show ahead. A lot of good guests. And, oh, UNLV basketball. Let me give you Man, a fun stat. Let me give you a fun stat. Completely unrelated to UNLV. Ben Simmons had his first 10-point game in over 500 days yesterday. The Nets lost by 32 and gave up 153 points. Yeah, but Benny came through. To the Kings. Mike Brown's team? The Kings put up 153 on the Nets. All right, let's talk about the NCAA tournament. The first bite. The Press Box first bite is brought to you by nobody. Is UNLV going to the NCAA tournament? Oh, man. It was there Print last the night. shirts. What a game. Print the shirts. What a game. I told last you, night. biggest game of the schedule. Yeah. Um, so far, it definitely was. I was there last night, watched it. Uh, I've got, I've got to say, man, that second half, um, 21 team in the country. Now, I don't know if they're the 21 team in the country, but they were ranked that. And to hold them to no baskets over 640, less 646. One, the, I thought more impressive was one two-point basket the entire second half. That's amazing to me. I mean, in terms of the height that Dayton has and the size they have, one two-point basket, they didn't let them anywhere near the rim. And when they did, they played good enough defense to disallow them anything in there. Um, great win by UNLV. I thought it was a great win by UNLV. The one two-point made shot by Dayton is one of the most incredible stats I think I've ever seen yeah. in a UNLV basketball game. Dayton scored one shot, made one shot inside the arc. Dayton only attempted four shots in the paint in the second half. Mm-hmm. They, they they only attempted four shots in the paint. UNLV eliminated everything inside yep. the arc, which is unreal to think that they did that, right? Like, whatever, you do that against Incarnate Word, that team barely belongs in Division One, But to do that for a half against Dayton is incredible. And I'll be completely honest, I'm stunned UNLV came back to win that game. I'm honestly stunned they came back and won in the second half. They're down 10 at halftime. And, and they've got like 21 points. Yeah, and the notes that I have from the first half, I'm like, they cannot score. UNLV right. does not have anybody that can get to the rim. UNLV does not have a chance to score points in this game. I'm like, if Dayton gets to 50, this one's over. Dayton barely got to 50, by the way. Um, because in the first half, UNLV's offense was awful. I mean, they, they couldn't make threes, and they couldn't get to the rim. And those are, you know, two very important things in basketball. For them to completely turn that game around in the second half, I'm I'm stunned they did that. And defensively, everything that we talked about in the offseason was 
okay, they got a lot of really good defensive players in the transfer portal. A lot of guys that were like the best defensive player on their previous team. How is that going to work? Can they really be this good defensively? And they forced 24 turnovers from Dayton last yeah, night. Yeah, 24. They're number one in the country this morning in forcing turnovers. 35% of their opponent possessions are turnovers. Dayton shot 36% from the floor. Dayton scored 0.78 points per possession. Just to give you some context, in the last six seasons, Dayton has been held under 0.8 points per possession once before last night. That is the second worst offensive game the Dayton program has had in six seasons. That was an unbelievable defensive game from UNLV. And when we've talked about in the preseason, like, all right, how good do they have to be on offense and defense to make the NCAA tournament? It was kind of, okay, if they're a top 20, 25 defensive team, that might be enough to carry an offense that's around 100, 110 in offensive efficiency. And I might be overreacting to one game, but what they did to Dayton makes me believe they're going to be a top 25 defensive team this year. Yeah, they were terrific. Um, I That's the first time I've seen them live. Uh, but the way... Ever? No, <laughs> this season. I didn't go to the first two I, games. Just, um, decided to go to this one. What a shock. Uh, the way they defend, take charges, slap at balls, um, you know, force Dayton to start their offense way out, way out top. Um, they were really, really good protecting the rim. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you watch that second half and if they defend like they did in the second half, then there's no one on their schedule. They can't beat. right. The, Nobody. the key to their defense. So here's, here's where UNLV is going to run into some issues. And we saw it in that first half. Dayton didn't have a great offensive first half, but it was solid. Where UNLV is going to run into some issues is, just like last year under Kevin Kruger, they help a lot. And that's going to take away shots at the rim, but it's going to give up three-pointers, right? When you get beat off the dribble and you send help side, you're going to give up three-pointers. That happened in the first half. The other thing is UNLV switches a lot, and they get a lot of guys that are you know in mismatches. That led to Dayton getting quite a few offensive rebounds in right. the first half because there there was one stretch where Kevin Kruger went four guards and victory Waco, and they played three defensive possessions and they gave up three offensive rebounds, right? right? Yep. Because UNLV would switch, Iwako would be out on the three-point line and it would be, sometimes it was Jordan McCabe or Jackie Johnson was trying to box out and that just wasn't going to work for him. So there's going to be some possessions where they give up offensive rebounds because they've switched a lot and they give up the threes because they're overhelping. But what happened in the second half? Dayton never beat anybody one-on-one off the dribble. There was not like a single possession where UNLV had a guy get beat off the dribble and you don't have to send help side defense if you don't get beat off the dribble. And that's incredible. Like defenses don't just stop everybody from dribbling to the paint. Generally in basketball, the other other team has an offensive player that's good enough to get into the paint. They played a whole half of basketball, and Dayton had like two drives into the paint in the half court. And it's it's incredible how good UNLV was. And listen, Dayton didn't have their starting point guard, and one of Dayton's big guys got injured and only played 12 minutes. That's the guy who had all the offensive rebounds. So some of that factored into this, and maybe it's a different game if Dayton has their starting point guard. But... UNLV is not going to play a lot of teams on their schedule that are significantly better than Dayton. They're just, they're, they're not like the mountain West looks like it might have some good teams, but Dayton's going to be a comparable team to the top of the mountain West. So if you can do that against Dayton, I honestly, I'm sitting here thinking they're probably going to be able to do that against everybody that they play. 
Like every team they play, they're probably going to have an opportunity to just not get beat off the dribble. Right. And if they do that, they're going to win a lot of games. Yeah. Like they're going to have a really good record because non-conference schedule isn't very good, but they're going to have a really good record because if you don't get beat off the dribble, nobody's scoring on you. Like it's just not happening. Well, and in the second half, they started making shots. That one one stretch where they made three straight threes, and in yeah. a game like that, when you're defending like that, three straight threes might be enough to you know extend the margin, which it did. To you're going to win the game. They went on an 11-0 run, and it was three straight threes, and then Keyshawn Gilbert got fouled on the three and made two or three free throws. Right. Now, Gilbert kicked his leg out, and he should have been called for an offensive yeah. foul on the replay. I know because I saw every Dayton coach in the world kicking his leg out. Which... What? And they were 100 yes. percent right. Gilbert absolutely kicked his leg out. But that was four possessions in a row that UNLV scored thanks to a three-pointer. Gilbert's was free throws, but he got fouled on a three-pointer. And the weird part for UNLV is that might be enough. Like, like They might just need the one or two stretches in a game where they hit a couple of threes, and that that's going to be enough to sort of swing games in their favor if they're going to be this good defensively. So let me ask you this offensively. Uh, Elijah or EJ Harkless goes 24 points, nine of 19 shooting. Keyshawn Gilbert, 16 points, six of nine shooting. And those, that was pretty much it. UNLV didn't have anybody else who played well offensively. Are those two good enough to carry UNLV knowing that they don't have to be great offensively? They just kind of have to be. I mean, if they defend like they do, I think they are. If they defend like last night, I don't, they're really good defensively. Now there's going to be nights where they do get beat off the dribble. I think, uh, there will be two, there will be players that beat them off the dribble. Uh, and get into the paint. But, uh, boy, I, I just keep going back to that second half and watching them defend and saying, if you just score enough, you're in every game this season. So the key for UNLV is, I think it's going to be one point per possession on offense. If they can get to one point per possession on offense, they're going to win every single game. Last night, they only got to .87. That's that's a bad offensive game. To give you context, UNLV was two and six last year when they scored under 0.9 points per possession, right? It's hard to win when you're under 0.9, but they won last night while doing that. So I think if they get to one, they're going to win every single time. If they get to 0.9, they're probably going to win most of those. But last night, there's one thing Kevin Kruger did that I thought was uh, simple, but actually worked out really well. First half, UNLV, like my main concern in the first half was that UNLV did not have a single player that could get to the rim off a ball screen. They ran some ball screens for Keyshawn Gilbert. They ran some for Jordan McCabe. They ran some for Jackie Johnson. They ran some for EJ Harkless. And not a single one of them was having success getting to the paint. There was one possession where they gave two ball screens to Keyshawn Gilbert. He didn't get inside the three-point line on the first one, and then he fell down at the elbow on the second one. The, The simple adjustment, Kevin Kruger just stopped running ball screens in the second half. He just let... Harkless and Gilbert just say, all right, just go one-on-one right, and try to just get go one-on-one. Right. And they did a really good job at that. The thing that Harkless and Gilbert did well, they didn't really get to the rim still, but they got to like six feet and they scored from there, which is technically a mid-range shot, but it's not a true, it's not like a mid-range jumper or whatever. It's not the it's greatest not shot, feet. right? You still want the layup, but they did really good at getting to about five, six feet away and scoring from there. Here's my sort of main concern though. I don't know how reliable that is or how sustainable that is. I don't know how likely it is that you're going to have Harkless and Gilbert say, hey, uh, we're not going to give you a ball screen, drive to the paint yourself, and score from six feet away. To me, if you tell me that's your offensive plan, I'm like, well, you suck. Like, your offense is just bad, which might be the case. So everything I saw from them offensively last night 
not that sustainable. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a very good offense this entire year. And it's going to be a lot of games where, okay, is, is the defense truly dominant? And if the defense well, if they is, are, they're in every game. Right. And if the defense is dominant, then they just need the offense to kind of be, to be okay. Yeah. And if they, what we saw last night, I don't know. I feel like the defense is sustainable and the offense is not. And there's going to be some weird balance the rest of the year. And don't, how many times do you think they lose a game because they can't score? Like the defense is I good, mean, but they cannot score and lose. I mean, I'm trying what do you, how many games do you play? 32, yeah, three 32. this year. I mean, you could, you could lose double digit games if you can't score. Right. And it's just weird to me. Cause I'm like, they're not giving up points this year. Like they're just, they're, it's not going to happen very often where their defense gets beat. So they don't have to be good offensively, but I also watch their offense for three games. I'm like, well, they're not going to score very much either. They're mar- I'll put it this way. Their margin for error is rather small because they're going to play a lot of close games because offensively they're just not going to blow people out. Because right. like, here's the other part. UNLV's number one turnover defense in the country, they are uh, 289th in terms of offensive turnovers. Like they're turning the ball over a lot and they don't shoot threes well and they don't really get to the rim. That's a terrible recipe, right? That's not going to be great. So I think they're probably going to lose. They're probably going to lose a handful of games, like fifty-five to fifty-three, and it's like, well, the defense was good, but you know they went one of twenty-four. But that hasn't from changed three. our thought process since the beginning of the year, since the beginning of camp. I, I think what we've, I think through three games, I think we're kind of almost seeing the extremes on both ends. Like they might be as good as possible defensively, and they might be as bad as possible offensively. So, Ooh, extremes! Like that might actually be the case for this UNLV team. All right, coming up next, we'll get into some Raiders because are they rebuilding at two and seven or, or no? We meet every, every week after every game, including the preseason. So I, I want to make sure I, I, you know, there's no, uh, that's a normal occurrence for us. Um, he's been great. He's been great. Um, he has the same urgency that, uh, that we all do, if not more. Um, he's been here a long time. He's seen this, uh, when it's been good and 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 he wants to win as bad or worse than anybody else does, you know, and he feels the frustration at the same time he's been incredibly supportive and um you know, and that's important obviously as you go forward, but um you know we're all here because of him, you know, and we want to do well for him, and we want to do right by him and so um he has whatever whatever he feels um I want to know what it is, you know. I think that's my my role, my job is. I hope I always, you know, uh, understand where he's at, and he doesn't he doesn't hide anything from us. And uh, I appreciate the way he leads and his support. Um, and you feel his urgency to try to do whatever he can do to help us uh, get to where we want to be as fast as we can be there. And I don't know what else I could ask from. We're back to the press box morning show with Ed Greeny and Tyler Bischoff. What do you think Mark Davis says to Josh McDaniels after losing to Jeff Saturday and the Colts to fall to two and seven? Stay the course. <laughs> keep grinding. Keep clawing away. Like, okay, you, this is for the this is for the future. Do you get the sense Mark Davis comes in and does a lot of yelling? Mm. Uh, no, I think he's emotional. He told me um, the other day that the reason uh, you do it Sunday after the game is there are emotions and you can be, you know. You know, you can have an honest conversation. He said by Monday, you know, it's kind of let off and you understand what happened. And 
you're not as emotional. So, so it's a lot easier to yell Sunday after the I game. I mean, it's than a it lot easier to be yeah. very honest Sunday after the game than Monday, and you've kind of moved on to the next game. So I just I enjoy the Josh McDaniels is and probably fairly trying to sort of throw water on the whole Mark Davis meeting with McDaniels thing by saying, well, it happens every game. It's like, well, you're two and seven, so it hasn't been very good meetings after each game. Um, so Pre- he has, hey, he said even in the preseason they did right. it. They were very good Four in the preseason. So another thing Josh McDaniel said uh, earlier this week, he said, we are building. I've never used the word rebuilding or anything like that. There's a process, certainly slower and more painful than anyone wanted. And that semantics right there? Yes. I mean, 100% I mean, semantics. You're building, but you're not rebuilding. I mean, rebuilding <laughs> is still building. building. They're, they're almost synonymous in this sense. And here, here would be the one place where building would be different from rebuilding, right? You take over a 10 win team that went to the playoffs, you add Devontae Adams. Chandler Jones, you give big contracts to guys like Derek Carr and Max Crosby and Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro. That would appear to be, hey, we're building on the 10-win team and we're going to be better the following season. But when you're not better the following season, it's hard to say you're you're building. Because like in all seriousness, what are they building? If we if we said so the Raiders building towards the next year. <laughs> I mean, if we, if we said if the Raiders were a uh, an actual building that was being built. It would have parted my progress and, on the front door. And the last year was a 10-7 and seven playoff-bound building. So, you know, pretty much a complete building. Maybe there's like an unfinished basement or something like that. What are they now? Well, like I said, I don't know if the concrete's been poured. So they basically I mean, tore down yeah. the building. I mean, Not very good. No, no, nothing's very good about this right now, two and seven. They are that shopping mall by your house that you're like, I've never seen a business move in there, but there's constantly trucks outside. (laughs) (laughs) So to me, when McDaniel says, whatever, we're building, we're not rebuilding semantics and all that. But I, I do think there is one sort of key point here. They are two and seven. And... To me, every decision they make from this point forward should be about 2023. Like any any roster decision they make, if it's somebody they're going to cut or somebody they're going to sign or claim off waivers or whatever, any playing time decision that they make, to me, all of that should be about 2023. Right, It should not be about this season. And I'll give you one extreme example for you. Zamir White needs to start getting half the carries on this team. Unless they plan to re-sign Josh Jacobs. And even if they do, don't wear him down. Zamir White needs to start getting carries on this team. I know Josh Jacobs is at a great season. And he's the key to the offense, right? When they, The only two games they've won, it's because he's had like 140 yards or whatever it is. But this is about 2023. And if you want Jacobs back next year, you probably need to limit how much damage he's taking. And if you don't want him back, you better get the other guy ready. You kind of need to see if Samir White's any good. Yeah, you see, you need to see if he is the guy. I don't know what his actual numbers are. I guess I could look him up, but I feel he's like Samir White. At all. I feel like he gets two carries a game, right. and they are always for negative two right. yards. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That's what it feels like happens every time Samir White is in the game. That's a decision that I think they need to make 
because everything they do from this point forward should be about 2023 and not 2022. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you, especially especially the front office. I mean, they should. We we had a Vinny wrote a story in the paper today about being being a top five pick and who they should you know who they should go after. <laughs> and that's where our stories are rolling, um, and for good reason. Who did Vinny have him going after? A quarterback. Quarterbacks were mentioned first. Yeah. Oh, quarterbacks were mentioned first. See, I will. The Raiders had a fun offseason this last year, right? They made a whole lot of splashy moves and a lot of moves where we were like, why aren't they doing anything? I don't know if there's anything more fun offseason-wise than the team you cover drafting a quarterback. Or, oh, offseason-wise? Right, or no, potentially no, drafting a quarterback, no. right? Even if they don't end up taking one in the first Doesn't round. Doesn't matter. If it's, it's just a... The idea that you would take a quarterback. Right. So I'm actually... Fairly excited about that. If that if we get that in the offseason, uh, the Raiders needing or wanting or possibly getting a quarterback, especially in the first round, especially in the top five, because yeah. then we'll get to yell about Bryce Young or whoever it ends Ooh, up being. We get to do our classic argument of start him now. No, he needs to sit a year. That's right. Start him or sit him behind Jarrett Stidham next year. That might be the key. But this team at two and seven, there, there's nothing truly left to play for. And you've got to find out as much about players that are going to be on the roster next season. And that, I think, is the most important thing the rest of this year. And that means things like playing uh, Zamir White. That means, like, Matt Collins, in all seriousness, Matt Collins should become a bigger part of the game plan, right? See what you have in Matt Collins, because he's had some good moments. He certainly disappeared for long stretches, but there are uh, certain decisions they can make that won't have a positive impact on 2022, but will have a better impact right. on 2023. Because like, I'd be excited just to read tweets if the Raiders gave Zamir White 12 carries in a game and Josh Jacobs got 11. I'd be very excited to read those tweets. That'd be a fun day on Twitter. Well, yeah, because of the uh, the fan base. Right. It'd be great. It'd be phenomenal. That's actually my question. If we were to poll the fan base now... What percentage would you think would be like, yes, Tyler's right. Let's get, let's not win another game, secure the a top five pick, uh, and like actually plan for the future. And what group would be like, we got to win a game. We got to win. We, we got to get five wins. I mean, I think if you convince the fan base you get one of those top quarterbacks, a lot of them might say, go get a top quarterback. But it's the Raiders fan base. So if you read, we, we love to read the YouTube comments, and if you read half of those, they'd want to win games. Right now, on Wednesday at 7.30, I think a good portion of Raiders fans would be on board with, yep, they need to plan for the future, lose a lot of games, get a high pick. Sunday, <laughs> during the second quarter, <laughs> yes, they're going to be cussing at Josh McDaniels for not right. winning the game, right? But right now, I think most people are like, yeah, See, of course. But then Sunday, when Zamir White has nine carries for yeah, what seven are you doing? Yards, why is he why is he in the game? Right. Then it's like, what the hell is this? See, I okay. So I have a lot of Bears fans in my family who are currently watching this Bears team and going, "Good loss, good loss, yeah, good loss." <laughs> yeah. All right. Coming up next, Ben Goats joins the show. Sharks the other way. Shot into the empty net. And Stone fires the puck in frustration. San Jose has taken a 4-2 lead. It's the press box. Joining us now from the review journal is Ben Goats. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Benjamin. Not too bad. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you guys? Pretty good. So... 
How much panic should there be after two losses following a nine-game win streak? Well, it's obviously not good to lose back-to-back games against two teams that not exactly having stellar seasons so far uh, in the St. Louis Blues and the uh, San Jose Sharks. The Knights now slipping all the way down the NHL standings into uh, tied for second, (laughs) actually, with the New Jersey Devils. So maybe things aren't so bad after all. Yeah, listen, in the long run, do I think these losses are going to irreparably harm their standing in the league and what will happen with their season? No. Do I think that they have been particularly good performances or one that the team should be proud of after such a successful winning streak? Definitely not. I think particularly losing last night and losing in what was a pretty even game, for the most part, it was not like the Knights got, you know, goal lead or the Knights just had a bunch of bad breaks go their way. There's definitely some bad breaks, including the fact that, you know, Jonathan Marsh so was arguing for a slashing call before one of the Sharks goals. But for the most part, I think if you watch that game, you came away thinking these two teams are on pretty even terms. And given where the Sharks are at and given where the Knights are at, especially with the fact that the Knights were at T-Mobile Arena, I don't think that's good enough for this team. So there's definitely a lot for them to clean up correct, I think particularly on defense. And so they're definitely hitting a little bit of a lull after I think probably taking too big of an exhale after that nine-game win streak. So is it defensively the last two games you'd say stands out the most in terms of what happened? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, they gave up a season-high five goals last night. Now, two of them are on an empty net. But in their last five, I believe it is, they've given up uh, three goals. Their first 11 games, they only gave up three goals three times. So there's definitely a noticeable trend upward. And I think you're just seeing mistakes being made that they weren't doing early on in the season. I think what was so impressive about the early winning streak is that they've got this new system from Coach Bruce Cassidy. They're playing a zone scheme now, so things are a little bit different. But it looks really seamless early on. I think a lot of us expected heading into the year, okay, this is going to be a little bit different. There's going to be growing pains. There's going to be some mistakes as they kind of learn this system on the fly. They get adjusted to it with live reps. And for the most part, uh, it wasn't like that at all. They really seemed to grasp it very quickly. And then now, I think more recently, we're actually seeing those growing pains just come up a lot later than we all expected. I think a good example is the second goal for the Sharks last night, one that Cassidy in his postgame comments was not very happy with. You have three Golden Knights below the goal line, defending only two Sharks there. That leaves Matt Nieto wide open in front of the net once the Sharks are able to get the puck off the end boards. And so that's a simple case of liking Cassidy's own defense. He wants a guy in front of the net. He doesn't want that guy to go chase the puck below the goal line, which is something that I'm sure in other schemes, that's kind of what the Knights are taught to do, to go get that puck. So there's things like that that I think are going to be adjustments to this team that are now kind of showing, even though they weren't really on display early on, which I think is a credit to the team early on, but now we're kind of hitting that natural uh, bumps in the road when they're coming up with this new defensive system. So that natural bumps in the road, that's the part that I'm curious about because a lot of credit's been given to Bruce Cassidy and his scheme and how good they've been defensively and how uh, little they give up in front of the net. Is this just sort of a, hey, you're definitely not going to be able to do that for 82 games. You're going to have bad games, bad moments, or is there actually maybe something to it where, hey, other teams are going to kind of figure things out and still be able to create stuff against you as the season goes on? 
I definitely do think that's part of it where teams are going to get more tape on the Knights. They're probably going to study more Boston tape and kind of realize, okay, this is how we have to attack the Golden Knights now. And I think you do see some of that. I thought some of the St. Louis goals uh, on Saturday night were just very well executed plays against the zone defense. It wasn't necessarily that the Knights were uh, poor, but the St. Louis Blues just kind of knew the soft spots of where to attack. So that's going to happen. I think the nice uh, belief is, you know, teams can do those kind of plays, but as long as we stick to our structure, we play things the right way, it's very unlikely that teams are going to score a bunch of goals that way where they're exploiting our tendencies and things like that. And I think that bears out even yesterday where like I said, the Sharks get that second goal on that big breakdown, then they get a power play goal. So other than that, the Knights are allowing three with one kind of big breakdown and then one uh, power play goal. Those are things they can clean up, and you can easily imagine the Knights holding the Sharks to two or fewer, which is going to win you a lot of hockey games. Um, same with kind of the St. Louis Blues game, where the Blues get up to three goals, and that is still considered obviously high for the Knights right now. But I think in most circumstances, giving up three goals in a game is not necessarily a death sentence, especially with the offensive talent that the Knights have here. So I think that they eventually will be fine once they find you the system and they kind of avoid the big mistakes like we saw against the uh, Sharks last night and like we saw even against the Blues with the giveaway that Aiden Hill had that really put that game back on even tilt uh, with St. Louis. So once those get cleaned up, I think they've been suppressing chances enough and haven't been giving up enough goals that they should be fine, especially with the offensive firepower they have. I think it's a credit to them. They've set the bar so high now that giving up three goals right now is looked at, you know, this big slip up where normally this team, especially with the weapons they have, has been able to outscore a lot of teams in those situations kind of throughout its history. So given what you said about defensively, are you still high on the goalkeeping, goaltending the last two games? I think it's been fine, not great. Obviously, I just mentioned Aiden Hill. I think really bad mistake against the St. Louis Blues that really helped even that game up. Now, whether that was on Aiden Hill, whether that was on uh, Nick Haig, the defenseman who was in the vicinity, who Hill was trying to pass the puck to, which led to a turnover. You know, not exactly sure. Hill would only say after the game, it's a miscommunication. Uh, it's a mistake that I made, you know, because the puck was on his stick. But that's something that needs to be cleaned up. You can't have your goaltenders doing that. Um, but for the most part, like I said, I think they've been fine. Logan Thompson, uh, I believe, makes 28 four saves out of 27 last night. Not a great number, but then once again, that Matt Nieto play is such a breakdown where I think that's really hard for him, where all of a sudden the puck's below the goal line, then it comes about three feet in front of him uh, to a Sharks player who then has kind of time and space to make a move on him. That's a really tough save uh, for a goaltender to make the power play goal. is essentially a kind of a two-on-one with Logan Couture and Timo Meyer, and Couture makes a great play to get it over. That's a really tough ask for Logan Thompson to stop. So I don't think, uh, even though the numbers aren't great last night, that a lot of that is on him. I do think because of the defense has slipped, naturally the goaltending has slipped, which has kind of, I think, been the expectation all along of, you know, Bruce Cassidy has talked a lot about, we're not trying to ask these goaltenders, you know, as inexperienced as they kind of are in the NHL, to go out and, you know, wear a superhero cape every night. That's not going to be the way that this team has success because we don't have, you know, that kind of big proven goalie like Robin Leonard, who is out for the season. So the fact that now they're asking these guys 
to do a little bit more. I think it's showing, you know, that despite their incredible early season numbers, Logan Thompson and Aiden Hill can't be asked to do it all. And so I think I'm sure there's going to be plenty of teaching tapes uh, from the last two games about how the Golden Knights have not helped their goaltenders, which will be a reminder of what the priority needs to be to set these guys up for success moving forward. All right, Ben, before we let you go, do you believe the Vikings can win the Super Bowl? Listen, I have not believed in this team the entire <laughs> way. They just keep scraping by and scraping by and making me shake my head after games being like, I can't do that. I'm just all in at this point. Oh, I'm along God. for the ride. They've got me again. They've trapped me. This is just like 2017 all over again where I'm not thinking it's just vibes. And that ended in a fiery train wreck disaster. Can't wait to see where we end up this year. Hey, enjoy it before the train wreck disaster. That's what it's all about. I mean, come on, Ben. A San Diego State guy's coaching you now with Kevin O'Connell. So you, you, you might go all the way, kid. Believe in KOC. Love him. <laughs> he is Ben Goats from the Review Journal. Ben, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. No problem, guys. So there has been Goats on the Golden Knights after back-to-back losses for the first time this season. Coming up next, we'll get into the college football playoff poll because the committee is trying really, really hard to put three SEC teams in. As much as I've enjoyed playing indoors over the years on turf, I do think it's time to go all grass throughout the league. And I think you would see less of these non-contact injuries that we see on some of the surfaces. We're back to the press box with Graney and Bischoff. The new college football playoff poll is out. Here's your top four, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU. And then after that, the teams on the outside, Tennessee, LSU, USC, Alabama, Clemson comes in at ninth. I also want to mention North Carolina is all the way down at 13. North Carolina is nine and one, and they've already clinched a spot in the ACC title game where they will take on Clemson. That's already decided who's going to play for the ACC title. So North Carolina is a potential one loss power five champion, even though they're ranked. And they're not jumping 13. from 13. Are you sure? I with all the SEC teams ahead of them. I think they could. If they win out, yeah, I think they. I think they have a chance. I think they are one of the uh, nine teams that have a chance to play for the college football playoff. I don't. Will they? Probably not. But I think they have a chance. I think they would absolutely jump an Alabama. They would jump Clemson because they beat Clemson. Uh, USC US, would have to lose. USC would have to lose. Uh, and then LSU in this scenario, if Might LSU have to lose for a third time, well, they're going to play Georgia. Yeah. If LSU wins the SEC title, they're ahead yeah, of North Carolina. Exactly. But if they lose to Georgia, North Carolina will probably jump LSU. Tennessee? That's maybe where it gets tough because Tennessee's not losing again. I mean, they could, but Tennessee doesn't play another good team the rest of the season. Right. And Tennessee doesn't have a championship They're not going to have play. a championship game. So I think North Carolina's got a legitimate chance to jump up to at least six. And then it comes down to, you know, is a 12-1 and ACC champion better than a one-loss Tennessee and a one-loss, say, Michigan Two teams that would not win their conference. Their conference championships. Would that's all we hear in. from that committee, yeah. how important that is. So mm-hmm. let's focus a little bit on the SEC, though. Tennessee is five. Uh, LSU is six. LSU is a two-loss team. They're ahead of one-loss USC, one-loss Clemson, one-loss North Carolina. What do you think the committee's doing with LSU at six right now? I think they're doing what you said on the br- coming out of the break that they're trying to get as many SEC teams to the top. 
So, I mean, what other explanation would you have? They lost to Florida State. <laughs> this is this is what I think is going to be fascinating because if LSU wins out, that will mean they are an SEC champion. They will have a win over Georgia, which prior to the SEC title game, that would be a win over the number one team in the country. They will have a win over Alabama, who's hanging around at eight and probably isn't going to lose. So they probably will stay in the top 10 and a win over Ole Miss, who's in the top 15 as well. They will have wins like quality wins, probably better than anybody else in the country. Mm-hmm. But they lost to Florida State, who's not any good. And Tennessee beat them 40 to 13. Beat the brakes off them. They didn't lose to Tennessee like, ah, fourth quarter drive, put it away. They got blown out by Tennessee. I would be fascinated to see if the committee cared more about LSU being the SEC champion or Tennessee blowing LSU out. I think beating Georgia and being the SEC champion would mean more to them. God, that, and if you're Tennessee and you're looking around and you're being like, we lost less games than them and we beat them by 27, that's that's going to be tough. Because to, the, the scenario here would be Ohio State wins the Big Ten there and TCU goes undefeated there. They're in. Georgia's probably still in if they lose the final yeah, game I don't of think the season. They, I don't think they drop from one to five. Right. So those three spots would be clinched. And then the fourth spot, you might be looking at Tennessee and LSU where... It's a legitimate argument that the team that lost the head-to-head matchup by 27 is in. Now, the other part here with the SEC, Ohio State and Michigan play each other. One of them gets eliminated. If TCU drops a game the rest of the way, Georgia's in. Tennessee's probably in. And if LSU finds a way to beat Georgia, they're in. They might put three teams in out of the SEC. And North Carolina, who won out, like you said. They'll throw the ACC champion in there. So it's with Tennessee at five and LSU in six, that possi- the committee has put them there, and those two teams are basically in prime position to make the playoff one way or another, right? They might not both make it. Obviously, TCU winning out would prevent both of them from making it, but they're both there sort of waiting, and if there's enough losses, they both have a legitimate yeah. shot. Now, on some of the other conferences here, Clemson and North Carolina, both one-loss teams, uh, ranked ninth and 13th. They're going to play each other in the ACC title game. If they both get there with one loss, how well, good of a shot do you think the winner of that game has? Or is it simply de- dependent on other teams losing? I mean, the other team we haven't talked about is SC, who's at seven right now. Yeah, If SC wins out and wins the Pac-12 championship, the way the rankings are, I think they're ahead of an ACC champion. Yes, they're 100% ahead of an ACC champion. Here's the interesting part with USC, because we talk about like quality wins and all that. For Notre Dame to win out, their next game is UCLA, ranked team, Notre Dame, and then they play a Pac-12 championship game, which is, I don't know who it would be right now, but you're looking at probably like a Utah or something like that, who's in the top 15. They're going to have a chance at three sort of quality wins. I don't mm-hmm. know if Notre Dame should be considered really quality, well, right but, now. but three quality wins. Their last three games are probably better than anybody else's if you win them all and get quality wins. I wonder if winning those three games would be enough for them to jump ahead of, say, a Tennessee. Or an who, LSU. Right. Who well if LSU beats Georgia they're not no no if I no I mean if LSU loses they're out anyway 
But like Tennessee, for example, who doesn't have any more quality wins to to play for the rest of the season. Are those three games, if all if they win all three, is that enough to jump Tennessee? Right? Is it well, enough? It probably to jump, should be. Is it enough to jump the loser of Ohio State, Michigan? Right. Because those are the two teams they're going to have to jump to have a shot here. And I would think yes. I think USC, despite being seven, despite being behind Tennessee and LSU, I think they do have a legitimate chance here to play themselves into the college football playoff, right? There are going to be some things out of their control, right? If LSU beats Georgia in the SEC title game, LSU and Georgia are probably both going. And if TCU wins out and if Ohio State wins out, that's That's probably the four. That's four spots. And they're probably not going. So it's not completely in their own control, but I think it's pretty close. It's as close as probably the seven seed could be at this point to having it in their own hands. Is USC going to be the team if they get in that you can just skip their game because they're going to get absolutely demolished? Because there's normally... There's norm- oh, okay. There's, yeah, yeah. The, there's normally one team that the committee puts in and is like, all right, Notre Dame, good luck! I, I think it's. I think there's a real chance LSU would get crushed by somebody. TCU, USC. I think all three might get crushed by somebody. Well, especially if they play someone like Georgia. Right. I think Ohio, <laughs> Ohio State, State might do it and Ohio too. State might do yeah. it to them too. Like we and also like it happens pretty much every year. But if we get Georgia, Ohio State, TCU, and USC, we might have two more just complete blowout semifinal. Oh, God, games. those every year. Like it, it might happen. We went to a committee and they're bad at setting like seating. I'm gonna win. I guess they're good at it because the top two just destroy. I'm gonna win Degenerate Danny some money this week. Ooh, you lost him some money. I lost him some money. Did he bet on San Diego State? I don't know. I got to ask. You told him bet on Stanford. I said bet on Stanford. Draft game for San Diego State. (laughs) They led from wire to wire. They never trailed. (laughs) Uh, Degenerate Danny money line Baylor against TCU this week at Baylor. Man. If we get enough losses, we are getting Alabama's done. Uh, maybe we're getting four SEC teams in. Yeah, there'll be enough losses because we talked. It's nice to think about USC getting three quality wins. I think there's a very small chance they actually win all three of those games and finish with one loss.